0: Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to other people about their stories with VEDs or Vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. This is your host, Katie, and before we get into the show, I want to remind you that the views, information, and opinions in this podcast are those of the individuals involved, and the information presented does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. Welcome back to another season of Staying Connected. I am excited to kick off this season and I'm going to start by addressing a subtle change you may have noticed in the disclaimer for this show. My last day as director of the Vets movement was March 15th, and since I am no longer an employee of the Marfan Foundation, I've updated the disclaimer. It's important for you to know that this show never was and is still not produced by or affiliated with the foundation or its division, The Vets Movement, but now I don't feel it necessary to include that information at the beginning of the show. As always, this show shouldn't be taken as medical advice. Another change I'm adding this season is a section at the end of the show to include upcoming opportunities to meet others or get information through various organizations serving our community. So be on the lookout for that at the end of this and future episodes. This season, we're going to talk to six members of our community, one of whom is a returning guest. Today, we're going to hear first from a member of our community in the UK, Claire Stacy, who was diagnosed with VEDS following her mother's death when Claire was 14 years old. In the episode, she's going to share how her understanding of and interaction with her VEDS diagnosis has changed as she's gotten older and dealt with medical events of her own. Before we go to the interview, if you want to support this show, please consider joining my Patreon. For a few dollars a month, you can make sure this show continues to reach people around the world with real-life stories about VEDs. You can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash translucentone, and you can also support the show by sharing this podcast with people you know to help us raise awareness of VEDs around the world together. Thank you so much for your support, and a huge thanks to my current patrons who have already been supporting the show. Thank you so much. Let's go to the interview. Hey Claire, thank you so much for joining me from the UK for the podcast today in this season. You want to go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody who's listening?
1: Yeah, so um, my name's Claire. I, I live um, in the UK. I have had a diagnosis of ASVDs for quite a long time now, um, and yeah, thanks, Katie for. For inviting me along in
0: yeah so when when were you diagnosed with that like how did that come about for you to be honest it,
1: it wasn't for me it wasn't like a a clear like this is the date i was diagnosed i've grown up with an understanding that i had something wrong with me and i think that then that then became an understanding of having vascular stem loss um my mom died when i was 14 suddenly um possibly from a complication of vascular EDS, but she never had a compl- she never had a formal diagnosis in her lifetime. So they'd queried von Willebrand's um and then on the death certificate because she'd had a mitral valve prolapse, it it was um the cause of death was was put as um syndrome. Mm. Um and I remember going for tests, you know, I remember going for skin biopsy, I remember seeing doctors. But as far as I'm concerned, I've always I've always known I've had Yes. um and then as an adult I had it rubber stamped with a with a blood test um and I think the you know the genetic team that saw me when they gave me the results were looking for a reaction looking gave me space to react and I just didn't really I didn't really have one I just because as far as I was aware I'd always had it I just you know I, I knew
0: I already knew I had it really so yeah yeah and you didn't know a lot about it you just knew you had something
1: Yeah, I just understood it um, on a quite superficial level as my skin tore easily, I bruised easily, I had to be careful. Um, But I didn't fully understand, you know, at a younger age, the implications of that, perhaps probably until my mum passed away. And then I used to think that, you know, that would be what happened to me that one day I would just suddenly suddenly collapse and, and that would be it and um, so I didn't have an understanding of all these other complications and because I was quite shut down about it I think it was probably quite hard for medical professionals to tell me more about it because I just used to cry all the time when I saw them so um, yeah they had a
0: bit of a difficult job. <laughs> yeah and I want to get I want to get back to how that you know, the evolution of how you've dealt with this diagnosis. But first, I want to ask you, if somebody asked you to define VEDS, how would you define it? Um, I mean, as far as when I
1: see a medical professional or I I explain it to a friend or something, I just say it's a rare genetic disorder that affects the collagen um, and and causes my skin to be very thin and tears easily um and bruises easily and I'm at risk of um you know spontaneous arterial um rupture and, and a hollow organ rupture and that's how how I explain it. As far as how I would define it as something that affects me more globally, like different parts of my life, I, I don't know how I'd explain that to be honest, because it's it has a different effect on different things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's such a it's such a strange diagnosis to kind of like wrap your head around um, fully and especially like emotionally. So let's go back to the emotional aspects of like your evolution mm-hmm. of understanding of that. So you said you were kind of like shut down and didn't really want to learn more about it. Um, can you tell me more about how that has changed as you've come to terms with it? Yeah, so
1: really I just thought Well, if I'm just going to Caps one day, I don't want to know about it. Well, how How could it benefit me to know more? It's just scary. It's a scary condition. It's a scary condition for people to read about. It's not bedtime, really, is it? I think a lot of people, you know, newly diagnosed or even with a a certain amount of knowledge and then they transition into adulthood and perhaps there's more questions they have. So for me, it came about because I had major complications. So I had a major vascular event. and 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 the reality of it just you know hit me in the face i had to deal with it i had no choice um so i think from then i started to um understand and read a little bit more about it but just even now it's bite-sized bits like i i still find it hard even though i'm able to talk about the condition i still find it hard to to read a great deal about it because because it's it's uh you're you're sort of staring your mortality in the face when you read it don't you and it's it's not even just your mortality or the other complications you can live with um so yeah so that's how it happened I basically had no choice but to deal with it because um and then obviously I didn't want these things to happen again so I tried to learn more about it but I already knew precautions I had to take like not lifting things that were heavy and that kind of thing so as far as lifestyle it didn't change anything it was just more of a um, a book knowledge of it I suppose.
0: Yeah so tell me about that that major emergency or major episode that you had that kind of brought you to yeah. this place.
1: <laughs> yeah. so I mean it just hit me out of nowhere even though I knew I had a diagnosis of ASCDS, um I was I was visiting some friends in London and um, I just had this low back pain which started to get worse and worse Um, And then I started getting um, pain radiating down my leg. I couldn't weight bear properly in my leg. The pain in my lower back was getting worse. Um, To the point I had to excuse myself and go, we were out for drinks. (laughs) I had to excuse myself and lie down in the toilet of this restaurant (laughs) because the pain was so bad. And really at that point, I should have been like diagnosed with vascular EDS, (laughs) you know, (laughs) severe pain, do something about it. But I was like, oh, no, no. So I went back to my friends and um, and then as we were, I said, look, I really don't feel very well. So we were walking back home and um, then the pain suddenly shifted from my back into my in my abdomen. And it was intense, really, really intense. I couldn't cope with it at all. Um, and they took me back to their apartment and I said, no, no, you should go out and eat because <laughs> they had, we planned to eat. I said, no, you should go out and eat. I didn't want to ruin the day for them. And, um, and then the pain got worse. I started vomiting. I had no idea where I was in London, where this apartment was of my friends. I um, ended up ringing, um, ended up 999 and they came out um, and I went to hospital. And at that point, they, they gave me a scan, they did all the right things, but they saw small aneurysms. They didn't think that was the cause of the pain. Um, and it turned out a week later, I'd been continued to be ill. So they discharged me. They con- I continued to be really, really ill. Um, sweating, nausea, I couldn't even smell food without feeling sick, just felt horrendous. Um, and then I've gone desperately, you know, having gone to the GP and they didn't know what was wrong because I was telling everybody, oh, they don't think it's the aneurysms. Mm-hmm. They don't think it's the aneurysms because that's what I've been told. So, of course, that was misleading then for the doctors. And when I went back to a I was absolutely desperate. Um, and they wanted to send me home. They thought I had a urinary tract infection. Because they found blood in my urine. But that was because I had a renal artery aneurysm. That was one of the aneurysms that was going on. Um, and then yeah, they found they did another admitted me um after some discussion, um, and uh did another scan and showed that the hepatic artery aneurysm had grown significantly in size when I needed emergency surgery. So yes, really I should have been thinking I have a diagnosis of vascular DS, I'm in severe pain, you know, but but it just didn't it just didn't, uh, I just didn't understand what was happening.
0: Yeah. So then mm-hmm. at that point, did they operate on that aneurysm? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I had, I had, had surgery for that. And uh, I mean, they did an amazing job. Because I didn't I didn't know that I would survive that. And that was the thing I think is um, scary with this condition, isn't it? You don't know if you're going to survive these things when they happen. But I survived quite a lot. You know, I think it, people should be encouraged that, that you know, the approaches to surgery now, are not as invasive as they used to be um and the outcomes are much better
0: mm-hmm. and how so this like obviously changed how you interact with your diagnosis with vads right i mean did you start reading after that point or how did you move forward after this aneurysm
1: yeah oh i i talked about it a lot more i talked about it a lot actually <laughs> um and, and I started to read a bit more about it. But then nothing happened for a long time. And I just carried on just sort of get, get on with life, try and put it behind me. And then so over 10 years later, uh, I had more complications. And then I had quite a few within the space of a few years. Um, and I, there was this pattern of misdiagnosis when I went to a And I felt like I wanted to do something to try and raise awareness not just for the benefit of people within the vascular EDS community, but also for health professionals because this condition throws these curveballs that people don't expect that subtle presentation symptoms could be a problem, an indication of something more serious. So I felt like I wanted to do something there and that's really when I started to get more involved Mm -hmm. um, in sort of advocacy and, and raising awareness. And I think I'd always stayed away from it because I didn't want people to think that I was doing it for attention, you know, to be like, oh, For me, my sad story, Um, but I felt a responsibility, really, having been through all of this, to try and do something.
0: I can definitely relate to that, to that feeling. Um, So, when you talk about a subtle presentation, tell Mm -hmm. me more about what you mean by that, like, what did you go through that kind of put this like? Yeah,
1: so, so the, the aneurysm I had in my arm would be a good example of that, so for me, it wasn't subtle in that I had sudden onset of really severe pain. I mean, it felt like my arm was in a vice. And I knew straight away it was that kind of sudden pain, that tearing pain that I've had with dissections. And I knew straight away something was really wrong and I went straight to a to But for the doctor looking at it, you know, I still had a pulse. You know, it was just that I was reporting pain. They looked on the scans um, and I think there were very subtle changes. So to them, they didn't think that was what was causing the pain. And I was discharged. Um, and then out of a matter of hours, I was still in absolute agony. A matter of hours later, I had to go back to uni. And they admitted me. Um, and I turned out to have multiple aneurysms in my left arm. So it's that. It, it, and I've heard of people as well having like headaches that aren't maybe severe, but they've been going on for a long time. And that's been an indication of perhaps a dissection, you know, further up um so it's it's yeah it's very difficult for you to know when to go to the doctor about some such sort a of presentation and yeah. it's difficult for the doctors to know if that's a major problem so yeah
0: and how have you did they do surgery on those aneurysms too in your arm yeah they
1: had to they they monitored them initially because I think obviously you know with vascular UDS they try and avoid surgery I, um and there was a risk because there are more limited treatment options you know they can't repair the arteries so easily um they monitored it to see what would happen um, and i think it, it baffled them a little initially um, as to what was going on and then they just i think what happened then is i got compartment syndrome where the pressure built so much in my forearm they, they had no choice but to operate so plastics came to see me and they were like basically because of the pressure building like the tissues were going to die um and my arm was at risk anyway so they did the surgery at that point um, and treated one of the aneurysms. Um, but the one further up the arm they monitored because the concern was if they went in straight away and did all of them, you know, that increased the risk of the arm failing. Mm. So I had this aneurysm sticking out of my arm, just winking at me for, for weeks. It was awful. And, um, and I was discharged home to sort of, you know, wait that out really. But that got bigger and they decided they had to operate they didn't want it to rupture they wanted to try and approach it as a more controlled planned operation it was
0: winking at you like you could see it in your arm pulsing yeah pulsing yeah how did you deal with the I I think that I would experience a high level of anxiety with that how did you you deal with that for weeks um
1: um well (laughs) uh, I mean I just tried to I don't know how I dealt with it really (laughs) um as best I could, I suppose. I mean, I did. I, I, when it came to the point where they said we're going to operate, um, I'd never had to wait for surgery before. You know, I'd ne- I'd always been like crisis surgery, and I, you know, it was in. I didn't have time to think about it. It was either about you know, or, or, or worse. So, I had to wait for the surgery. And it was probably about a week, I think, to wait for the surgery. And I, at one point, I just totally lost it. <laughs> I think I went to A and E because I was convinced it has got bigger. I was so terrified of it rupturing. And so when you say, how do you deal with it? Not very well. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I cried at this poor vascular uh, surgeon and uh, he tried to reassure me that, you know, it's okay. And we're still gonna wait for the surgery and, you know. Um, but yeah, I was borderline hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> so I dealt with it very well up until that point, And then, yeah, I just totally lost it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah so I want to go back to like how your understanding of these like subtle presentations of emergencies and all of these misdiagnoses at A&E like how this has changed how you interact with doctors or like your partnerships with your own doctors like has that changed and and how so so I've got a better relationship with the vascular
1: team at a local hospital I also raise the concerns about this pattern of misdiagnosis in a with the emergency department team and um, so I didn't put it through as a complaint but I said to them look this keeps happening is there anything we can do about it um, and they were really good they were very responsive so I feel like if I went into so the next time I went into a actually they said to me all oh, right um, well we'll get you seen by a senior doctor because we tend to do that with vascular UDS and this is at the point of triage and I was just like, "Oh my gosh, nobody's ever said that to me before." So I do feel like they were very um, understanding, very responsive. Um, so I feel a lot more confident um, going to A and also I'm more aware that such a presentation can mean something more serious. I think I'm more prepared for that now. Um, and then also my GP is really supportive as well. So I think it's just having that good relationship with your not even okay, so much a good relationship, but making sure that they understand and making sure you know who to contact. Um, in where to go in an emergency, and sometimes there's this sort of grey area in between going to see your GP and going to see going to the only department where I actually approach the vascular team and ring the vascular nurse and say I've got this problem, and they're really good, and then they speak to the vascular uh, consultant. So I feel like I've got a really good support network mm-hmm. as far as the medical team now, and I feel I'm better prepared as well. So I think you know there's a there's a lot we we don't have control over but I think being prepared as patients is something we do have control over so I think it's really really important that we do that and I know how horribly wrong it can go when you don't do that so yeah yeah
0: Yeah. and that's something that I'm very passionate about as well this idea that you know, you can prepare for everything that you can prepare for and build those partnerships and talk to your first responders and all of these things that can help you in an emergency where you don't have to think about those pieces anymore so heavily or like wonder, what am I going to do, right? Like you have those relationships with your doctor. And I think being able to have a vascular team that you can call and say like, hey, I don't know what to do. Is this something I should go to the emergency room? And I think you know, for a lot of people, it might be a vascular surgeon. It might be a cardiologist. It could yeah. be your primary care doctor or or GP. Um, but it's important, I think, to have those tools and get them set up ahead of time. Absolutely.
1: Because, you know, by the time you have an event, it's too late to think about that.
0: You have to think
1: about it beforehand. And it feels a bit like overkill when you maybe haven't had a vascular complication or um, you've had a big gap in between. Um, events, you know, it feels like overkill, but it's it's really not. It it is the difference between a good outcome and potentially, you know, something more serious. So, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that one. It's really important, and it's something that we have control over. I think that, you know, as patients living with a rare disease, we do. There is a certain amount of responsibility there. That you know, there are over seven thousand rare diseases. um You know, doctors can't possibly know about all of them. We can't expect to turn up at an any department and them to understand. And there's always a high turnover of staff. So you really have to make sure that you have the information ready. Um, and if you're not able to advocate for yourself, somebody else to do that.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, totally. And I think, it's, I think it's so incredibly important. And there's a lot of tools out there now for emergency preparedness. Like I know yeah. that the VEDS movement has an emergency preparedness kit. Annabelle's Challenge has one. There's medical IDs, like things... Things are you. definitely
1: better than when I had my first event. So, and, and I've been working with Annabelle's Challenges of Volunteer on the emergency care project that they set up, looking, and part of that project, the first thing we did was to review the information that patients carry with them. Um, and initially we had a blue wallet card, but the idea was it was something you could carry around easily and you could give to medical professionals. But we, we were finding from people's experiences that, that wasn't enough, you know, so we've added to that pack, uh, you know so some people have something there to bring with them additional information because it's, it's out of hours you know you don't want it's out of hours particularly when you don't have somebody you can call like the specialist clinic in London and Sheffield here they're not open they're not accessible um you know these things for me have always seemed to happen in the middle of the night I don't know why um and so it, it's really important to be prepared with that information yeah
0: yeah So let's go back to your, your story. I think that you're in your, how old are you? You're in your forties. Yeah. I
1: have to think about it. 43. I keep referring to myself as 30 something, which is just, I'm in total (laughs) denial.
0: So your mom died when you were 14.
1: Yeah. She was 49. Okay.
0: And then you in your young adulthood got kind of genetically confirmed with this condition. Did it change? like how you approached thinking about having children or having a family? Like, did you ever want to have children early on? I I think that my
1: knowledge of having basc came before that point where you think, shall I have children, shall I not, or before that age. Mm-hmm. So I think it has been mentioned to me that there are risks with having children. So I think I'd accepted in my mind that that probably wouldn't be an option. So I don't know if I'd really have wanted children. Um, If I hadn't had fast food Yes, I don't know if that desire would have been there. But I think because I had to make practical decisions, I think I always accepted that might not be a possibility. And so when I met my partner, that was a conversation we had quite early on because I didn't want him to. That's the difficult thing. You don't. It's quite a serious conversation to have with somebody early on in the relationship but you don't want to get to the point where you're emotionally involved and then you go oh, by the way <laughs> but, you know and then for a lot of people I know that that's if that's something that the partner wants that's a deal breaker and it and it has been for me in the past so um so it's one of those awkward things that you sort of have to bring up but I've decided for numerous reasons that I wouldn't have children. I didn't didn't want to pass it on. Uh, the condition on um, I'd lost my mum quite young I didn't want that to happen to them um, and then there was the practicalities of looking after a child so not being able to lift anything heavy and the financial implications of, you know what if I couldn't work in the future and how would we support a child etc so I was fortunate that I could make an informed decision I know that some people obviously decide to have children and there's not a right or a wrong it's a very personal choice isn't it so by me saying that I've decided not to it doesn't mean that I'm saying that you shouldn't it was just that's what I've decided for myself
0: yeah well thank you for answering that I'm always like cautious to ask that question because I yeah. want to assume that somebody ever wanted them to begin with or you know you don't want to assume
1: Yeah, because some people don't. I think that's the problem isn't it the assumption is oh you're you're, you're a woman you want children <laughs> and you just like, some people don't and we have a very happy life without children, and sometimes we actually think, like when when people are in lockdown and homeschooling their children, we were like high fiving each other, that we didn't have children in <laughs> the after. So, you know, there's a lot of positives about not
0: having them. And I've got nieces and nephews, and mm-hmm. so yeah. But it's a it's a it's a sensitive topic, isn't it? Yeah, it is a very sensitive topic, and I really feel for anyone out there listening to this who's going through that decision making process or thinking about that or having anxiety over it. So there is no, I don't think there's a really clear right or wrong answer either. It's a very personal decision.
1: It is a very personal decision. Um, and um, I think the, the the only advantage of anything is if you have a diagnosis and you're making that decision, because then you're able to make that informed choice. And I know for some people, they've got that diagnosis after having children, um, which is, is is hard for them so yeah there's no right or wrong definitely and I think they're a lot more positive now about people having children with first definitely I've seen a change um since it was first discussed with me I've definitely seen a more positive attitude to it so yeah yeah
0: definitely if there was advice that you would give to somebody listening who is going through the diagnosis process or has just been diagnosed or is dealing with like the emotional impact of the diagnosis like do you have advice for someone going through that? Um, I mean, I I don't know
1: that I have advice as such more of a story of encouragement, but when I had understood my you know, having this diagnosis, I thought that you know, one day I'd have an episode and that would be it. I've had a lot of surgeries and a lot of complications, and I've survived them. You know, I think that there there's better monitoring of your condition now there's a better understanding than there used to be even 10 years ago um and the um I mean the the endovascular surgery and I mean I've had repair of an aneurysm where they make a tiny hole in your leg and go up through your artery and you I mean you just never know I've had spots that have left a bigger (laughs) scar I mean it's just incredible what they can do and I think you know if you have a good care team around you um but I think if you I think, I suppose, perhaps as far as advice, I think, although it's really hard to think about an emergency and to think worst case scenario at the point you receive a diagnosis, I wasn't prepared when I had mine. So I think even at the very least, if you have the information that Annabelle's Challenge or Beds Movement recommend that you have, and you have like an overnight bag or something, because believe me, I've ended up on an operating table with pants I wouldn't want anyone to see. so I always make sure I have like <laughs> an emergency bag and things and I think just being prepared having a good care team um but it's not easy to do I totally accept that it's hard
0: yeah
1: it's hard to think when you get a diagnosis that, that could be um and, and I think as well if you, making links in the vets community I didn't want to do that and I, and I actually feel like I've gained a lot from it I was scared of if I got to know somebody and they passed away and there have been people who I've been connected with on Facebook and that has happened. But I think once I dealt with that, it became a bit easier and I think there is so much benefit to being involved in the community, um, to being able to ask questions because I can't ask my friends, is this normal? Like, is this, you know what I mean? I I, I can ask them, have you had this? But their body's totally different to mine. So to be able to ask other people and for them to understand it does make a difference
0: yeah yeah that's really great advice and if you're listening to this and you haven't been connected with somebody like there are a lot of resources out here for you and um put a comment in this episode or you know reach out to the VEDS movement or annabelle's challenge and they can help you find somebody i think for sure so thank yeah. you so much, Claire. I do want to ask you one final question. I like to, a lot of medical professionals listen to this podcast. And so if you had advice for medical professionals or something you'd mm-hmm. want them to know about vets, what would that be with your life experience? Yeah.
1: Is that um I mean I I think that trust between the patient and doctor makes a big difference to your quality of life living with vascular EDS. You know, I've got doctors who've never looked at me like, oh just being a bit anxious mm-hmm. because as soon as somebody looks at me like that I can't trust them I can't trust them to support me so I think um really I'm trying to understand that yes when they present to you it might be anxiety it might be that you're anxious and you're not sure what to do about some symptoms or it might be that there is something really serious going on but I think because of the subtle presentations with vascular eds I think it's really important that any symptoms that are reported are taken seriously, that there's a low threshold for scanning mm-hmm. and monitoring, um, because that's that's that hasn't happened in occasions with me, and and it's been very traumatic actually. Um, I, I would also encourage um, more open communication between patients and doctors as far as when things don't go right. So um, this is for patients as well. So when I've been misdiagnosed or things have gone wrong, I've met with the doctors afterwards and I've talked to them to try and understand why they made those decisions. And it's actually really helped me to better understand my condition and what doctors are thinking and how to be better prepared. Um, but yeah, I think I think for doctors just to you know, take your patients very seriously with any symptoms that they have and understand that it's very hard for us to be objective, entirely objective. Because there's like maybe 80% we've been objective and then there's like 20%, you know, 20% that
0: we're like, oh my gosh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so it's yeah, we need that support. We can't do it without them. Yeah, absolutely. And that is like, that is such great advice, I think, for medical professionals, because like I've been in situations where somebody thinks I'm, I don't want to feel like just like, I don't want to be labeled as just anxious because there's a root of the reason, (laughs) like there's a reason why. Mm-hmm. like I'm here in the emergency yeah. room right like it's there's a good reason
1: yeah I mean I did a I did a podcast with um Paddy with votes for Our diseases um Paddy Coglin, who's a vascular surgeon who treated me he said something that I thought was really useful he said that at the point a patient with vascular EDS hits your emergency department that's your warning mm-hmm. like that should just be a warning full stop that there's something really wrong potentially going on. And he said about lowering the threshold. He has a very low threshold for investigation. Not investigation, sorry, uh, scanning and monitoring. Because, you know, it it catches even the most experienced doctors out. You know, it it really is um, challenging for Mm -hmm. both the patient and the professional. So, yeah.
0: What podcast is that?
1: Oh, um, Medics for Rare Diseases is a charity in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a podcast with them. they do a series of podcasts about different rare conditions, and we did one with them uh, called "Not Just Type of Mobility." Um, uh, we were trying to raise awareness of the challenges when patients are facing an emergency complication. Um, so, yeah, they're a great resource in the UK. They're trying to encourage uh, educate better education of rare diseases within the medical community.
0: I love that. I'm going to try to find a link to that episode and throw it in the episode show notes. So do,
1: yeah. And listen to it. yeah lucy mckay uh, is like on the leads of the charity and she's amazing she's very um very motivated and very passionate about raising the profile of rare diseases um to try and improve that patient
0: experience that's wonderful thank you so much claire for coming no. on and sharing your story from the uk i loved talking to you and i just really appreciate you sharing your life story with
1: everybody yeah no thanks for doing it katie i think it's useful to hear for people both patients and professionals to hear that story isn't it and hopefully learn learn from it so I think what you're doing is great thank you
0: so so much much. that's the goal all right all right thank you so much Claire thanks thank you Claire for sharing your experiences on the podcast and thank you everyone for listening There are a number of opportunities to connect with others and learn more about Vets coming up soon. The Marfan Foundation hosts a number of in-person walks for victory around the United States, and there are several right around the corner in places like Raleigh, Nashville, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., and Seattle. There's even an online virtual global walk for victory in May. Also coming up is the Foundation's conference, held this year in Chicago, July 13th through 16th. In addition to this conference, the Elders Downlow Society will be hosting a VEDS camp in partnership with the VEDS movement the weekend prior to the conference at Camp Joy. Links to more information about these events can be found in the episode show notes. I've also included a link to the podcast episode about VEDS by the Rare Disease Podcast for Medics that Claire mentioned in this episode. On our next episode of Staying Connected on April 8th, we will talk to Tony Harrison, who was previously diagnosed with hypermobile EDS before a medical event that prompted genetic testing for veds. Don't forget to subscribe to Staying Connected on your podcast player so you don't miss this or any other future episodes. And if you like this show, I hope you will consider sharing it with your friends on social media to help us raise awareness of veds together. You can also support the production of this podcast by joining my Patreon at patreon.com translucentone. Thank you so much and I will see you soon.